Welcome to the Pod of Asclepius, your fortnightly healthcare technology podcast for the technical crowd. Sponsored by the American Statistical Association and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. We're bringing the technical experts of engineering, entrepreneurship, data science and regulation straight to your earbuds. No fluff, no sale pitches, just important technical ideas described well to keep you up to date. All in the time it takes to get to work. And here's your host, Glenn Wright Colopy. Hey folks, and welcome back to part two of our episode on personalized probabilistic patient monitoring. Now, a question that has been asked quite frequently, particularly with the advent of very large data sets, is whether or not statistics is particularly necessary for the analysis of data. For example, a lot of the traditional aspects of statistics with quantifying our confidence bounds and our level of uncertainty in estimates, are those things necessary? Now that we have so much data, we might not particularly have much uncertainty in what a given estimate should be. And a very similar question has been asked for Bayesian statistics as well. Is it really necessary for us to have these priors to help regularize our models when we have so much data that the priors pretty much get washed out anyway and they don't particularly matter or influence the model? And the answer is, of course, statistics and probabilistic reasoning are, of course, extremely necessary, no matter how large your data sets are, because the larger your data set, the more you are going to rely on principled, sensible ways to synthesize that data and organize it in a meaningful way. Now, if you want to hear more about the unique values that statistics offers as a frame of reference, definitely you know go to the joint statistical meetings. You'll hear plenty of good work about that. Check out Andrew Gelman's blog for some very intelligent and elegant descriptions of the ways that these statistics can bring a lot of sensibility to your data. Over in the Bayesian fields, check out people like Steve Roberts, Michael Osborne, Frank Wood, those folks uh, who do some really great work explaining the value of Bayesian statistics and how this all fits in. Now, of course, I'm not smart enough to actually explain those issues as well and elegantly and deeply as the people I just mentioned, but I can say one thing about statistics. It sure is nifty. So that's my contribution today to show you that not only is statistics useful and principled and highly applicable no matter how large the data sets are, but it's also just nifty too. And the place I'm going to show that to you today is in artifact detection, and in particular artifact detection for patient time series. So I'm going to show you a very, very simple statistical tool. Um, it's the simplest form of probabilistic novelty detection, and it requires nothing more than you to fit a probabilistic distribution, evaluate data with respect to the probabilistic distribution, and select a threshold to indicate whether or not a particular measurement is too far from expectation to be believable. So before we get too far into detecting artifacts and removing artifacts from data, it's probably good to figure out first what is an artifact? In particular, what is an artifact in patient vital sign monitoring? Well, in the area of patient vital sign monitoring, when we talk about artifacts, what we're usually talking about are when the patient's vital sign data is not representative of the underlying physiology of the patient. The data says, for example, that the patient's heart rate is X, but the patient's heart rate isn't X, and it's, for example, nowhere near X. And the magnitude of incorrectness of the artifact can, of course, vary. But the general idea is that we are using these data to either model or understand specific aspects of the patient's physiology. But the data is not actually representing the underlying physiological mechanisms that we think that we're monitoring. So why does this occur? Why do we even have artifacts in data? Well, to understand this, what we need to do is go back to understand how vital sign value estimates are derived in the first place. 
the key thing to remember is that the vital sign estimates that we see, for example, on a bedside monitor, are derived from a series of layers of both the physiological mechanism of the patient's body, but also how those mechanisms are observed and interpreted by medical devices, how they are subsequently processed by computational algorithms, and then further post-processed by further algorithms. So to understand this a little bit better, I thought it'd be good to look a little bit at patient vital sign waveforms just so we understand more what we're talking about. And to illustrate this point, I'm using a figure from uh, PLOS-1 by Barbara Drew. Barbara Drew is a professor at UC San Francisco and is a really good source on these types of things. So if you're enjoying this presentation and the previous one on patient vital sign monitoring, Barbara Drew is a really good person to look into to get more up to date. She publishes across medical journals, nursing journals, and technical journals, so she has a very good holistic and robust view of how all these different elements fit together into clinical care. So definitely check out her articles if you're interested. And what we're showing in this figure that she created are the different waveforms of various vital signs for a single patient. And to zoom in a little bit, what we're seeing here, these are very typical readings that you'll see in a critical care ward, is that we have multiple probes to measure heart rate, whether or not, for example, they're on either the patient's limbs or on the patient's chest. But we also have waveforms for SpO2, which is uh, typically what we think of as blood oxygen saturation, and further waveforms for respiratory rate. For example, the patient has a breathing belt across their chest, and the respiratory rate captures the growth and contractions of the breathing belt. And so these different waveforms form the basis for understanding what the patient's vital signs are. But these waveforms aren't our estimates of the patient vital sign values themselves. Once these waveforms are measured, they go through several signal processing algorithms that standardize the data, standardize their magnitudes, do some detrending, and then detect key aspects of the waveform data, for example, peaks and troughs and interbeat intervals and things like that. And those series of signal processing algorithms, which are very sophisticated and very interesting in their own right, lead us to the time series estimates that we see below. So these are the individual instantaneous estimates of what a patient's vital sign values are. And the values that we then see on a bedside monitor are when you take those time series values and perform subsequent smoothing algorithms, for example, mean and median filtering. And the idea is that for the human consumption that we want these values to be consistent showing averages and approximations. And this means that at a glance, you can get a very good idea about where the patient's vital signs are at any given point in time. So it's very effective in that regard. But it's important not to miss out that the values that you see on the bedside monitor are derived from the smoothing of time series. And those time series themselves are, in fact, derived from smoothed windows over the waveforms. And those waveforms go through multiple levels of processing in advance. And many of those processing algorithms are meant to remove many of the artifacts that we discuss below. And these signal processing algorithms work very well when the vital signs waveforms behave as expected. However, when artifacts occur in the waveform data, those artifacts ultimately lead to artifacts in the vital sign estimates. So what Drew and all are showing here is an example of the heart rate, oxygen, and respiratory rate waveforms when an artifact occurs. And what we can see is that the dynamics of these waveforms vary in the presence of artifact. So what we can see is that when the signal processing algorithms are working, anticipating to have data like what is on the left, but then are handed data like what's on the right, that you can experience problems. They are parameterized and tuned to deal with typically normal and reliable data. And when those artifacts manifest in the waveforms, you start to get problems with the outputs of the signal processing. 
and then those corrupted signal processing outputs percolate farther down into our inference about what the patient's vital signs are. And the technical challenges of extracting these vital sign values only increases as we try to do more technically sophisticated approaches to monitoring patients. If you look back at Drew et al. and some of the other more clinical papers, you can actually get a pretty good idea about the types of interference you can get in your vital sign estimation. So it's things like if the probe becomes detached from the patient, they'll obviously corrupt the vital sign. Furthermore, things like patient movement can corrupt the signal. If a different vital sign deteriorates or becomes abnormal, it becomes significantly more difficult for the signal processing algorithm to estimate what the other correlated vital signs are. And of course, there's still also signal processing error, which comes from the fact that we are using algorithms that are tuned for specific ranges and specific types of patient physiology. So when the patient deviates from that physiology, the signal processing algorithm may no longer be accurate or precise in its estimates of what the patient's vital signs are. So when we see that there are many sources of artifact in our data, well then the clinical motivation to be removing these artifacts and better processing them is important. In Drew et al., they are discussing those artifacts with regard to reducing false alarm rates that distract clinicians from operating optimally. In this setting though, what I'm interested in is removing these artifacts because they also interfere with our machine learning algorithms. So as we saw in the last presentation, there's a lot of value to be derived from having a machine learning algorithm or some type of continuous computational monitoring of a patient's vital signs. Because whereas a clinician can only observe patients intermittently and is typically only consuming the current values, machines have nothing better to do than continuously monitor patients and look at more patient-specific contexts for deciding whether or not the patient's deteriorating. And for the specific machine learning algorithms that I discussed in the previous presentation, it's quite obvious where artifacts might interfere with the inference that we're wanting the machines to make. So for example, in step change detection, the machine is learning the patient's vital sign trends and estimating forward into the future. And this can be challenged by artifacts for a variety of reasons. First of all, artifactual values tend to increase the level of noise of any trend that we see. So it becomes harder to extract the signal from the noise and know precisely where the patient's vital signs are. When we're looking at this forward prediction, the headlight that's forecasting the vital signs, the increase in noise that a patient has will only further increase our uncertainty about where values are in the future. So if our step change detector is extremely uncertain about where a patient's values are in the future, it won't know a strong deviation from a weak deviation. Furthermore, by having highly artifactual or noise corrupt data, we'll have a higher chance of falling outside of our window of expectation. So there's some chance that it could actually interfere with our estimate about whether or not a patient has deteriorated or deviated from the anticipated trend. In the example of time series matching, in which we want to take the patient's vital sign time series, fit the time series distribution to it, and then essentially throw away the data and leave that shell of a pattern, you can also see why we might want to remove artifacts. Like before the step change detection, an increased number of artifacts means that the time series itself is noisier. So we would require much wider confidence bounds in order to describe where the patient's values currently are. And so when we are generating these automated estimates of the patient's entire segment, whether it's in the current patient or in our dictionary of healthy patients, this would start to leak out a lot of the information we would have because these strong signals showing different trends would bleed out into looking simply like fuzzy noise over periods of time. And since we know that there's value in improving early warning by making sure that these machine learning algorithms are correctly learning the patient's physiology, 
we want to support those in every way and make sure that they aren't being troubled or further burdened by artifacts. Now, of course, there are plenty of interesting statistical algorithms and machine learning algorithms out there that perform inference simultaneously on time series and on artifacts. So they identify the artifacts in the time series and they remove those and perform inference in an automated fashion. So as we discussed before, many of the artifacts that we see in vital signs are derived from some type of physiological mechanism. And when we're looking in the time domain, a useful distinction to make between various types of artifacts or whether or not those artifacts are transient or if they're persistent. So this figure right here shows on the left transient artifacts and on the right column persistent artifacts. And so examples of transient artifacts might include whether or not the vital sign probe has been placed onto the patient or removed. So for example in A and B we have these rapid accelerations or decelerations in the patient's heart rate. But the key piece of context here is that there is, are not previous values in A and there are not subsequent values in B. So if we have missing values on either side while also having a rapid change towards much more consistent vital signs, what we might suspect is that the consistent values are the true values and the rapidly changing values must be the product of some other type of interference. So in this case, when you add it to the fact that there are no further measurements after that change in B or before that change in A, that it's likely that the probe was simply attached. Another form of transient artifact is just the artifacts that generally pop up over the course of a period of monitoring. So like in part C, where we can see that heart rate values are fairly consistent around 70, but you have occasional values in the 140 range or 120 range. It's not plausible that the patient's heart rate is jumping up quite that rapidly. Some small amount of heart rate variability is expected, but something on that level is probably not something that you would either believe, or, and particularly you wouldn't want feeding into a machine learning algorithm. And these more transient artifacts are much easier to detect and know what to deal with, typically because we're just happy to remove them compared to the more persistent artifacts like the type you see on the right. The ones you see on the right can be truly artifactual due to things like the probe becoming detached or noise corruption, but it also becomes more possible that it's due to an actual underlying deterioration event. So when we have the possibility that this noise could be real or it could be due to some other type of error, it's usually better to go back to the waveform data for that. So when we're looking at data in the time domain and make having these time series algorithms, it might be best to leave those alone and go back to the waveform to decide what to do with those. But for the ones on the left, which are the transient artifacts, we're probably pretty safe just to remove those. So as so we saw from that picture, it's quite obvious that artifactual or noisy data appears artifactual. And so that brings up the question, why do some artifacts look like artifacts? Why are our eyes so good at picking out artifacts from a time series. Even if I hadn't highlighted the artifacts in red and the true values in blue, why is it that our eyes can pick out these artifacts from the true values? And part of the reason for this, I think, is because we're looking at time series data. And when we look at time series data, what we expect is that over a single period of time, that true values will be central around a certain point, and values that deviate from that centrality seem less and less believable. So here, for example, if we look at the small time window around 0.4 hours, and we turn those values into a histogram, what we can see is that the vast majority of values fall around 70 to 75 beats per minute. And then we have a small number of values that deviate strongly. So we would certainly believe values that are in, say, the 70 to 75 range. A value in the 80 range also looks fairly plausible. However, when we start getting to the 85 and 90 and 100 and 120 range for those values, or 50 beats per minute range in the lower values, 
Those have deviated so significantly, especially when the data itself is not particularly variable around the central point, then it seems less and less plausible that those are representations of true physiology and more just a, an artifact derived from any of the variety sources, for example, noise corruption or signal processing error. And so the way I view this is that artifacts are low likelihood values. So in other words, if you fit a distribution to the central points, that model would have low likelihood with respect to these more artifactual data points, the larger outliers. So for example, looking at our histogram, we could take the heart rates in a very small five minute window and fit a Gaussian distribution or a gamma distribution, which is only on the real positive line or something more flexible like a kernel density estimate. And then we can evaluate the likelihood of that model with respect to the various data points. And places where that model has low likelihood with respect to the data point, then it suggests that the model does not describe that data point well, and therefore the measurement is artifactual. And just as a side note, that's the reason I use the term low likelihood. You could also be thinking of these as low probability density points, depending on which way you wish to condition your information. But the actual metrics when we're looking at these IID cases are identical for this method in particular. You can either think of these as the model has low likelihood with respect to the data point, or alternatively that the data point has low probability density with respect to the model. And so the idea is that as we are going through a patient's vital sign time series and look at an individual window, we can see how the vital signs are distributed within that small window. And if we're using a probabilistic model like a gamma distribution or a kernel density estimate, then we might like to see how would a gamma distribution fit itself to that data. So here what we're showing is a small window and we are highlighting the current values that are captured in the current window in blue. And then below, we're showing a plot of all the data that are included. And the gamma fit is a simple maximum likelihood estimate to the data. So we're showing how the gamma fit would change as the data in the small window changes. And then there's also kernel density that's being fit to the data using a single empirically selected bandwidth parameter. And what we might observe from this is that the gamma fit struggles to describe the distribution of data points within a given window, whereas the kernel density estimate is very good at always placing density where it is highest and meeting the peaks as expected. The gamma fit, on the other hand, typically has trouble describing the peakiness of the data, especially when there are high peaks and also heavy tails within the same window. So you might conclude from this that the kernel density estimate is very good at describing the distribution within the window. So that is what you might want in order to create a model or to create a score to detect likelihoods. But that's actually not quite the case because an advantage of the gamma fit by being less flexible is that it actually creates these lower probability density regions where we expect the artifacts to be. So here what we can see is instead of looking at the probability density, we're looking at the negative log of the probability density. And the negative log of the probability density, since it is inversely related to the probability density, would make a good artifact score because it means that these values are high when you are in a place that is in the tail regions of the distribution. So as we can see from the gamma fit, the artifact score becomes very high the moment you deviate from those central values. In contrast, the kernel density estimate, by always placing probability density where there are values, shows that no matter how far a measurement deviates from the point of centrality, that it will not have a high artifact score because there's always density put on this. And you can actually understand this if you look at the equation for kernel density because the probability density function includes each data point in the function. So just bringing this back to how we would then apply this artifact score that we've derived to an actual time series, 
what we can see here is that we are going through a patient's heart rate and the square shows the values that we are including in the current time window. And we expect that small time window to be more or less IID. And by grabbing the, the points within the time window above, calculating the maximum likelihood gamma distribution or distribution of your choice, and then evaluating the negative log marginal likelihood of the data points with respect to that distribution, we're getting our artifact value below. And as we can see, the values that fall far away from the time series didn't have these larger artifact scores in the negative three to negative five range for the lower plot. And so as we go through, it's identifying and circling the values in real time that it expects are artifactual. And then from those, we can select a threshold and remove the values. So we might see that, well, most of the values fall in about the negative three to negative one range. And so we wouldn't want to remove those by creating a threshold there. But in the negative three and a half to negative four range and negative five range, those are values that are almost certainly transient artifacts and worthy of removal. Now, I have to apologize. In the previous slide, I was using negative log probability density, and I scaled it a little bit further to make it easy to visualize. In this current plot showing the heart rate time series above and the artifact score below, I'm actually just showing log probability density of each of the data points. And also to be clear, whereas the blue box above shows the time window of heart rate values, the red box below shows that same time window, but the artifact scores haven't been determined yet because the heart rate values haven't had time to pass fully through the time window. So the algorithm hasn't quite decided yet what the artifact score is for that same heart rate value that it's seen above. So now just a very quick bit on whether or not such a simple method works. You know, it's really interesting that we have a method that has essentially three simple steps. You take a window in time, you fit a distribution to the values in that window, and then you assess the probability density of the data points with respect to the fitted distribution. It seemed like it might be a little bit too simple to actually be something that works functionally. But in fact, these things work fairly well. So back when I was originally working on this and trying to create some simple methods to remove artifacts, I actually spent my Christmas break a few years ago going through dozens of patients and several days worth of their data and mainly annotating artifactual values based on whether or not they realistically could have been representative of the patient's physiology. And the reason that we did this across many patients is that we want to see not only if these methods work at detecting artifacts on the whole, but also whether or not they work on a patient-by-patient -patient basis, because it's no good if we create an algorithm that works on average, but has very poor performance on individual patients. So looking at the bottom plot first, which is the performance in artifact detection across all the patient's data, what we could see is that for a threshold on the artifact score of, say, negative 4 or negative 3.5, that we could more or less remove about 40 to 50% of all artifacts while removing less than 5% of true values. And keep in mind that those true values are the most outlying of the measurements that were not annotated as artifacts. And as we move up, for example, to an artifact threshold of negative 3, we're now looking at removing about 10 to 15% of true measurements, but we're moving about 80% of artifactual measurements. And that may or may not be a useful uh, trade-off, given that we have data that is acquired nearly secondly. Removing 10% of data might not actually remove so much data that we can't perform vital sign inference, but when compared to the benefit of removing 80% of artifacts, that might be a pretty good trade-off. But the idea here is that by creating this plot, we can actually tune and select where we want that trade-off to occur. Now back to the question about whether or not this simple method is sufficient to actually work on an interpatient basis. So on the top plot, what I show 
are the 95% confidence intervals for any given patient. So for example, at the threshold of negative four, the solid line represents the median percentage of artifacts that are removed for the entire patient population. And the confidence interval around that describes the 95% quantile interval for those patients. So what we can see here is that at the negative four threshold, still across all patients in black, that the number of non-artifactual values that are removed are from about zero to about 1%. But in all those patients, the percentage of artifacts that are removed range from about 30% to about 50%. So best case scenario for a given patient, you're gonna be removing about half the artifacts. Worst case scenario, you're gonna be removing about 30 to 35% of the artifacts. And similarly, when we can start seeing the range of non-artifactual data start to balloon, so around the threshold of negative three, we're removing about 70 to about 90% of artifacts. And that's coming at the cost for individual patients from about 20% of all non-artifactual data being removed on the high end to still about 5% of non-artifactual data being removed on the low end of patients. So there's a variability in what fraction of good and bad data is removed at any given threshold. But as we can see, the patients select fairly consistently and the cutoffs work so that we can make sure that the artifact scores are applied appropriately across all patients. So as I described earlier, the reason that we're wanting to remove these artifacts is because it will make it easier on the machine learning algorithms ultimately to perform bottle sign inference if we have a multitude of ways in which to detect and remove artifacts so that we aren't feeding junk into the algorithms. But the question is also, is there any evidence that using this nifty statistical method and removing the artifacts in advance and having this additional pre-processing step, does it actually affect what the clinical outcome might be? And for the particular data set that we applied this to, the answer is no. And I think that's a pretty good sign because what it means is that on average, the signals created by a deteriorating patient are so strong that they aren't strongly affected by artifacts, at least the methods that we were using to detect deteriorating patients. There's other methods that might be much more strongly affected and much more sensitive to vital sign artifacts. But for the ones that we were looking at, the signals were so strong in distinguishing between healthy and non-healthy patients that there was very little difference in removing transient artifacts. They weren't as affected by transient artifacts. But an interesting aspect of looking at a subgroup of patients, the patients who had the least early warning, so that means the patients who would benefit the least from a machine learning algorithm, what we saw is that they actually had significantly improved early warning times or alternatively, a significantly reduced false positive rate for any given early warning time. So this plot that I'm showing you right here, it's a bit more granular because we're looking at a small patient size of about 20 to 30 patients. However, what we can see here is that prior to artifact removal, in order for the most difficult patients for a machine learning algorithm to receive two hours of early warning, that you would need a false positive rate of about four and a half percent. In contrast, by removing those artifacts, you'd have a false positive rate that's more in the 3% range. And while that might only seem like about a 1% difference, the fact is when you're doing continuous monitoring, that 1%, it does add up across a ward to a large number of false alarms. So it's certainly not entirely conclusive that you'd be wanting to use this type of artifact removal technique for all machine learning algorithms, but it certainly is a nice tool that even using such a computationally simple and lightweight technique, that we can take the patients who are at most of risk of being missed, the ones who are at the bottom level of early warning performance, and give them a little bit of a boost. Now, there's a lot of future work to do to this, and one of the nice things about working with such a simple statistical method is that it can feed in very well to more complex methods. 
and people will understand the simple method so they feel more comfortable putting it in as part of the pipeline. So I've only really talked about the transient artifact removal techniques, and there's a lot more to do with the persistent types of artifacts. And those are really challenging because you typically do need to go back to the waveform data in order to determine whether or not it's due to the physiology or some other type of noise corruption. And the signal processing algorithms, which I don't work on, but a lot of really great heroic researchers do because this is an important and continuing field, do work on the various challenges of these more persistent waveform artifacts and how to deal with them and how to derive clinical inference from them or despite them. So moving beyond what can be done with the waveform data, there's also the issue of what you can actually do with the post-process time series. Because typically, in many cases, we might be blinded to what the waveform data is. And so we're only left with the time series and to do inference on the time series itself. So in those, we still do have methods like Kalman filters and Gaussian processes, which can take the time correlation aspect of these different values, in particular the time correlation aspect of different vital signs across different vital sign channels. So looking for rapid changes in heart rate with respect to whether or not the respiratory rate or SpO2 have changed as well. And using those correlations between time and across vital signs to determine whether a particular value is erroneous or possibly representative of real physiology. And another area that's been really fun to see these simple metrics like the one that I've described going to are back into more traditional IID machine learning models. So random force and logistic regressions where we might wish to use the simple method that I described as one of multiple features in order to decide whether or not a particular value is artifactual. So here's a quick example using vaccination data from infants. And the vital sign that we're measuring is temperature, which basically you can think of it as a cold little button that we place on the stomach of an infant who has just been vaccinated. And this button, because it is heated by contact with the infant, will cool off whenever it is not in contact with the infant. So as we can see with the red highlighted sections in both these time series, there are places where there's a precipitous either warming up or cooling off of the temperature. And what this means is that most likely the temperature probe became either removed slightly or removed completely from contact with the infant. And so we might wish to use something like the simple IID artifact detection score that I described before. But there's no reason to limit us just to that single metric to make a decision because we know, for example, the temperature range that any infant can have. And furthermore, we know things like the, for example, room temperature. So we can include information like how far it is specifically from a threshold around the patient's specific temperature, or we can see how close it is to typical room temperature. And so we could add further features like that or how rapidly the values are changing. So we can add derivatives and other features like that. And so we can take a large number of these IID methods and throw it into an IID machine learning algorithm to combine these in a way that might make a better decision than a single metric alone. Again, it's just really nice to have these simple methods because you can use them quickly and robustly. They're computationally cheap and you understand them well enough because they're intuitive that you don't mind throwing them in with a basket of other features as well and using them in that way. Now, I spent a very large amount of my time trying to get the time series aspects and learning time series correlations across multiple variables and multiple vital sign channels and trying to get all that working robustly because I think that it is very important to have a model that does intimately integrate the time series correlation between things. And I think that you certainly can lose a lot of information by taking a time series and breaking it down into its IID components particularly breaking it up into its IID components over small windows and then treating the time series as if it's simply a collection of small sequential time windows. 
but at the same time, the simplicity of these approaches can't be ignored. So if you do have a large number of metrics that you can just sort of fit together, and they each are understandable and easy to control and easy to check them for quality, then that's not something to throw out either. So again, part of me always prefers to keep that time series information, but when a useful IAD metric or useful IAD method comes about, there's no reason to throw away a tool when you can have it. So that's it for me today. We've now had one episode introducing the podcast and the podcast purpose, and this episode concludes a coverage of my research interests, and in particular why I think that probabilistic and personalized methods are particularly promising for patient monitoring applications, and why machine learning methods are particularly apt as a way to implement that patient-specific inference. Next up, we have Emma Hughes, who is a member of the IET Innovation Management Technical Network, and also a leader in Innovation NHS. And what she's going to talk about is learning how to find and cultivate technical entrepreneurial talent. But she also has some really great insights on how to help technical experts like ourselves jump the gap from a technical solution into clinical implementation. So she spent a lot of time working on the gritty aspects of making cool tech work in clinical practice, and she's definitely worth hearing from. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and you'll stick around for our next episode with Emma Hughes. Thanks and have a great day. Well, that's it for this episode of the Pod of the Scoopius. We hope you enjoyed it and will tune in for our next episode. If you're watching from YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and leave a like. You can also follow us on our other social media channels, including LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great story or presentation that's ready for prime time? Or know someone who does? Drop Glenn an email because he'd be happy to hear from you. We would like to thank our sponsors from the American Statistical Association section on Statistical Learning and Data Science, section on Medical Devices and Diagnostics, and North Carolina Chapter, as well as the Institution of Engineering and Technology. The views expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not their employers, our sponsors, or anyone else not saying the words.